Wrestling with Theology is a weekly Bible study that seeks to equip you to wrestle with the theologies that surround us in our everyday life. Through these studies, your faith in Christ will be strengthened through the Scriptures and the Lutheran Confessions. Join Pastor Minton for these next few minutes as he helps you get ready to wrestle with theology. It's time once again for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton here with you in the confessional corner to finish up our conversation of the pontifical confutation of the Augsburg Confession. We're going to look this month at Articles 25 through 28 as we see what they have a problem with in the Augsburg Confession in these final few articles. We get into Article 25 on confession. They praise us for still having private confession and absolution. But they say that we should be condemned like the Montanist of the second century because we don't require a full enumeration of all sins. We allow for generic absolutions. And they refer back to Article 11 of the Confutation we're talking about the confession of sins. So now we get into Article 26. Now we get into some of the meatier things, pardon the pun, as we get into the distinction of meats and holidays and such like that. And I want to read a few of these paragraphs that they have. What they afterward assert concerning the distinction of meats and like traditions, of which they seem to make no account, must be rejected. For we know from the Apostle that all power is of God, and especially that ecclesiastical power has been given by God for edification. For this reason, from the Christian and devout heart of the Holy Church, the constitutions of the same Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church should be received as are useful to the Church, as well as for promoting divine worship as for restraining the lust of the flesh, while they enable us the more readily to keep the divine commands, and when well considered are found in the Holy Scriptures. And he who despises or rashly resists them grievously offends God, according to Christ's word. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. A prelate, however, is despised when his statutes are despised, according to St. Paul, not only when he says, He that despises despises not man, but God, who hath also given to us his Holy Spirit, but also to the bishops, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to rule the church of God. If prelates therefore have the power to rule, they will have the power also to make statutes for the salutary government of the church and the growth of subjects. For the same apostle enjoined upon the Corinthians that among them all things should be done in order. But this cannot be done without laws. On that account, he said to the Hebrews, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account. Here, St. Paul reckons not only obedience, but also the reason for obedience. 
So here we have in the computation, we can't get rid of all of the rules of the distinction of meats and the proper foods and the holy days and so forth, because that just leads the church into anarchy. Well, yeah, it kind of has done that, because you have many Christians across the board that go to the extreme of the Roman Catholic Church and having all the saints' days and the whole sanctoral cycle, as you can look through a Roman Catholic Missal and see all the different days. There's like 200-something saints' days, if I remember right. To the opposite end of the non-denominational and the big mega churches, where, yeah, even Christmas is not considered a big deal, especially if it falls on Sunday. Because we had a few years ago where many churches canceled their Christmas services because Christmas is a time for family and not for church. Those are the two opposite extremes. And many Lutherans fall within the middle of those two because there are some who really want to bring out the feast and the festivals and the occasions that are in our church here. And then there are others that are like, I just prefer to just do whatever I want. That is part of the anarchy that the papal theologians were trying to say is going to happen if you don't have these distinctions, if you don't have the laws saying that this must be the way it is. So yeah, we have to give them points for that one, but still, they go on further, saying, Moreover, in extolling here faith above all things, they antagonize St. Paul, as we have said above, and do violence to St. Paul, whom they pervert to evangelical works when he speaks of legal works, as all these errors have been above refuted. False also is the ecclesiastical ordinances obscure God's commands, since they prepare man for these, as fast suppress the lust of the flesh and help him from falling into luxury. False also is it that it is impossible to observe ordinances, for the church is not a cruel mother who makes no exceptions in the celebrations of festivals and in fasting and the like. Furthermore, they falsely quote Augustine in reply to the inquiries of Janarius, who diametrically opposed to them. For in this place he most clearly states that what has been universally delivered by the church be also universally observed. But in indifferent things, and those whose observance and non-observance are free, the Holy Father Augustine states that, according to the authority of St. Ambrose, the custom of each church should be observed. When I come back to Rome, he says, I fast on the Sabbath. But when here, I do not fast. So they want to have universal observance of everything, so that we can all talk about the unity of the church. And if we have things that are not universally observed, then we cannot say we are united. But then again, they also want to say in non-commanded, in the adiaphora, the indifferent things, we don't have to worry about unity in those things. And that becomes an entire issue in and of itself as to what exactly constitutes indifferent things. Because the Roman theologians the Lutheran theologians, the Reformed theologians, all have different lists of what are indifferent and what are commanded. And they continue on. If they would preach the cross and bodily discipline and fast, 
that in this way the body be reduced to subjection, their doctrine would be commendable. But their desire that these be free is condemned and rejected as alien to the faith and discipline of the church. Nor does the diversity of rights support them, for this is properly allowed in regard to particular matters, in order that each individual province may have its own taste satisfied, as Jerome says. But individual ecclesiastical rights should be universally observed, and special rights should be observed each in their own province. Again, universal observance of the major things. You can add a regional flair in there. So yeah, you can throw in a German hymn instead of doing the Latin Mass on, a, on occasion, but not completely. That would be one of the things that they completely deride Luther against of having changed too much stuff into German instead of keeping the Latin that unites the church. Again, this is just some of the double talk that goes on as they try to logically state their opinion, but that their opinion, and that their opinion should be universally accepted as demanded by the Pope. But, again, we allow for a little bit of change from province to province. What do we have to say about it? Make up your mind. Either have everything be universally the same or allow variations from place to place and allow individual congregations even to have their own ways of doing things. Which comes about very often in our own Missouri Synod churches because you have congregations that know certain services in the hymnal and they don't know others. Nor do they even want to bother with the others. And these are not taking them out of the unity of the Synod because, well, we only do Divine Service 1 and 3 in Matins. Or another one says, well, no, we do Divine Service 2. We do Matins and Vespers and all of these other things. There's no problem with that. Because each place has its own culture. Each congregation has its own way of doing things. As anybody who has visited multiple congregations will tell you, that can be a very sticky situation. But enough about the distinction of meats and uh, other traditions. We move on into the two weightier issues that they have with us as the final two articles. Article 27 on monastic vows. In their rejection of the Lutheran understanding, they write, For in the Old Testament, God approved the vows of the Nazarites and the vows of the Rechabites, who neither drank wine or ate grapes, while he strictly requires that the vow once made be paid. It is ruin to a man after vows to retract. The vows of the just are acceptable. God also teaches specifically through the prophet that monastic vows please him. For in Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5, it is read as follows, Thus saith the Lord, Unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls, a place and a name better than that of sons and of daughters. I will make them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. But to what eunuchs does God make these promises? To those undoubtedly whom Christ praises, which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. To those undoubtedly who, denying their own, come after Christ and deny themselves and follow him, 
so that they are governed no longer by their own will, but by that of their rule and superior. We have this idea that because there are vows in the Old Testament, monastic vows are automatically acceptable because, well, it's just an extension of these vows from the Old Testament. They go on to say they are also poor defenders of their cause when they admit that the violation of a vow is irreprehensible, and it must be declared that by law such marriages are censured and should be dissolved, as also by the ancient statutes of emperors. But when they allege in their favor convive nuptarium, they accomplish nothing, for it speaks of a simple, not a religious vow, which the church observes also to this day. The marriages of monks, nuns, or priests have therefore never been ratified. So we jump from the monastic orders all the way up to the marriages of monks and nuns and priests that have never been ratified in the church. Although the first three plus centuries of the church had married priests and even married popes. But it's never been ratified that the clergy and the spiritual life have marriage. Again, they do not understand their own history. But like many of us, because that history goes so far back, it can be forgotten because nobody really cares about ancient history. They go on to say, for the monks have never have not for the monks have not fallen from God's grace, as the Jews of whom St. Paul speaks in Galatians 5 4, when they still sought justification by the law of Moses. But the monks endeavor to live more nearly to the gospel that they may merit eternal life. Therefore, the allegations here made against monasticism are impious. Moreover, the malicious charge that is still further added, that those in religious orders claim to be in a state of perfection, has never been heard of by them, for in those orders claim not for themselves a state of perfection, but only a state in which to acquire perfection, because their regulations are instruments of perfection and not perfection itself. In this manner, Gerson must be received, who does not deny that deliver who does not deny that religious orders are states wherein to acquire perfection, as he declares in his treatises against the proprietors of the rule of St. Augustine, of evangelical councils, of perfection of heart, and in other places. Again, they talk out of both sides of their mouths that the monks and nuns have not fallen out of the grace of God. They also say that they're not in a state of perfection, but in the place where they can achieve perfection. Why? Because they follow more clearly the gospel by doing the law of Moses. Didn't Paul write over and over and over about this, about the separation between the two, that you cannot follow the law and be closer to the gospel at the same time? Clearly, when they quote from Galatians, they're not even reading Galatians. They're just picking up the verse that is cited out in the confession and says, you know, it has to mean the exact opposite because that's what we think. And how many times do we actually do that in our own ways and in our own debates on certain matters, that it's only what we believe and everything must conform to what we already believe. Otherwise, it means nothing.
Unfortunately, we do that way too often. All right, so we move into Article 28, the final article of the Augsburg Confession, so therefore the, also the final article of the Confutation on Ecclesiastical Power and whether the bishops have the right to hold both the sword and the and the uh, and the shepherd's crook of the church. They say all subjects of the Roman Empire are must be forbidden from bringing the clergy before a civil tribunal, contrary to imperial privileges that have been conceded. For Pope Clement the Martyr says, if any of the presbyters have trouble with one another, let whatever it be adjusted before the presbyters of the church. Hence, Constantine the Great, the most Christian emperor, was unwilling in the Holy Council of Nicaea to give judgment even in secular cases. Ye are gods, he said, appointed by the true God. Go settle the case among yourselves, because it is not proper that we judge gods. Again, we have a misrepresentation of the scriptures that, yes, no, we don't deal with church matters in the civil courts. And that's not even what Melanchthon was talking about in the Augsburg Confession. Melanchthon was talking about the mixture of church and state, that you had bishops who were also the territorial lords, which should not be the case. Although, although America is one of the few places where we have a distinction and a definite division between church and state, it's one of the first places that this has happened. There have been other places that have tried to do it, and, well, eventually the Holy Roman Empire had started that way, but ended up having the whole thing blow in on itself. And so they go on to talk about how Galatians 5.13, that we've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Basically, they go and talk about the fact that by not wanting the bishops to also have secular power, they are not loving the bishops. And that's the biggest thing that we have in this life, is that if you don't like what I'm doing, you don't love me. And you can't possibly love me. And the only problem is sometimes the most loving thing to do is oppose what somebody is doing. The uh, ready examples are the child wanting to touch the hot stove or go run out into traffic. Is the loving thing to do to let them touch it and get burned? Let them run out into the road and get run over by a semi-truck? No! It's to stop them from doing harm to themselves. But people don't like to be told no. And that goes for two-year-olds. That goes for highly theologically trained priests as well. So I'm going to close this month's podcast or this week's podcast with the conclusion of the computation. From the foregoing, visibly the confession and its reply, since his imperial majesty perceives that the elector, the princes, and the cities agree on many points with the Catholic and Roman Church and dissent from the godless dogmas 
that are disseminated all over Germany and the pamphlets circulated everywhere and that they disapprove of and condemn them, his holy imperial majesty is fully convinced in hopes that the result will be that when the elector princes and cities have heard and understood this reply, they will agree with united minds in regard to those matters also in which they perhaps have not agreed hitherto with the Roman Catholic Church. And in all other things above mentioned, they will obediently conform to the Catholic and Roman Church and the Christian faith and religion. For such conduct on their part, His Imperial Majesty will be peculiarly grateful and will bestow His special favor upon them all in common, and also as opportunity offers upon them individually. For, which may God forbid, if this admonition, so Christian and indulgent, be unheeded, the elector, princes, and cities can judge that a necessary cause is afforded His Imperial Majesty, that as becometh a Roman emperor and Christian Caesar and a defender and advocate of the Catholic and Christian Church, he must care for such matters as the nature of the charge committed to him and his integrity of conscience require. What does the conclusion say? Submit or be conquered. Quite honestly, it is the traditional Muslim understanding. Submit to our way of doing things, change your thinking, your mind, or else we can have the emperor come in and overrun your lands, take away everything you have, and force you against your conscience to come back into alignment with the church. And there is the problem. We can't have a debate, we can't have a disagreement we must have subjection to our way of thinking. That is the Roman computation. It is that you must accept our way because our way is right. And there can be no room for discussion. You must accept it wholly and completely or we will encourage the emperor to ravage your land. And this is the Christian way of doing it. Yeah, we have slightly different idea as to what the Christian thing to do is. Because really, that's what the Augsburg Confession was in the first place, is the elector, the princes, the cities coming together and in a Christian manner presenting what the issues are. The Roman response? There need be no issues. You submit to our way as right, and everything's fine. Don't, and we'll make life miserable for you. And as we go through the confessions, especially as we get towards the Formula of Concord in a few years, because the apology of the Augsburg Confession is going to take quite a while, we get into the history of what happens between 1530 when the Augsburg Confession is given, and 1580, when the Book of Concord is published, there is a lot of strife between the Roman bishops and the Roman power of the state and the Lutheran princes. But we'll get into that as we get to it through our study of the Confessions. Next week we have Pro Wrestling America, the rematch of the World Heavyweight title, final between Jerry Lawler and Terry Funk. Will there be a winner this time? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings 
as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments about what you have heard on Wrestling With Theology, send an email to wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you have subscribed so it will show up automatically on your podcast app. Please also share the podcast so that more may be equipped to wrestle with theology.